coming at that person as a non-human. We come at them as a human and often extremely sensitive human, often a human whose hole is bigger than the hole I had. And we know that because they need the love of the whole world to feel okay. We come at them with love and compassion. Often, I often find that their response then is to come at others with more love and compassion. And they have this platform to do it in ways that I never, that I never could. And so, yeah, I, I agree with your friend. And I Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Jason Garner. Jason, I'm I really enjoyed part one. If anybody's tuning in now, I'd recommend them starting there. I kind of want to go back to this subject, though, this idea of of the warrior monk and this idea of, I want you to tell me how to pronounce this correctly, this this Buddhist concept of helping everybody reach enlightenment. Buddhan? Yeah. Bodhisattva. <laughs> Bodhisattva. Okay. Bodhisattva. Um, you know, for, for founders or CEOs or entrepreneurs today, bringing that, you know, trying to bring that type of principle to work with us. Well, actually, before we jump into this, because this is where I want to go, can you give people some some scope if they're not familiar with with artists that you may have worked with? Can you talk about some of your favorite artists or some of the biggest artists that you've worked with over your career? Yeah, you know, in indirectly because I was managing a you know really big division of, of concerts, I worked with everybody kind of you know, but but I I started off in the Spanish language piece of the business, and it's a place I still hang out and do some, some work in. And so, you know, Enrique Iglesias is, is someone who's like kind of dear to my heart. Mana, Alejandro Fernandez on the Anglo side, I worked really closely with Coldplay. And you know, I think the first person I ever saw do yoga was Chris Martin and the first vegans at the time that I was, you know, I was with them for a couple months on a tour. And so I was eating vegan food and that, you know, looking back, that was a, a big introduction I did some work with Jay-Z, who was wonderful and really kind of smart and brings business sense into the into marketing and, and great music. Yeah, so just lots of lots of big acts, and it was really kind of fun. And, and I really, I love artists. So, like, artists are the most sensitive among us. You know, they, 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 they're so sensitive that, there's this feedback loop that's created between them and their fans. And so when they're in touch with that, they know what we want to hear, what we need to feel, and they know how to reach us. And so that's why these, these connections that we have with musicians are often like inexplicably intense and, and tight. And so it's always for me been like an honor to be a part of that process and then to help facilitate the connection between them and their fans felt to me, I don't want to be like melodramatic, but it's almost something holy in that. Like there's something really special going on and I get to be a a conduit of that love between artists and and fans. And so that was always really special. That is special to me to this day. And then it's funny what you say about artists. I feel like, you know, not just musical artists. I'm, I'm, 
I took the really traditional route to investment banking. I'm an art school dropout. <laughs> I'm an illustration major who dropped out to become an entrepreneur and got head In my business, we're all failed rock and roll musicians, so I totally get it. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and tell us a little bit about what entrepreneurship looks like for you these days. Because I remember you, at least in something I read or listened to, you talked about you went much more into the spiritual, the monk stuff, and then realized that that you wanted to also do the warrior stuff, the, the entrepreneur stuff as well. What does that look like these days? I took about... 10 years off and, and really just spent time getting to know my body and getting to know my spirit and getting to know my mind and traveling around the world, studying with different teachers. And, and, and then a few years ago, I, I did a one month solo meditation retreat. I just, I have a little space where I live that I meditate and I just went there and stayed for a month and had food brought to me, but literally just stayed and meditated for that, that month. And, and I noticed that my mind kept wandering to business. And I, when, when Kobe Bryant retired, they said, how do you know it's time to retire? And Kobe has a really great medita- had a really great meditation practice. He was taught by a wonderful teacher named George Mumford, who people who are competitors might, might like that. So I mentioned that, but Kobe's answer was, I know it's time to meditate to retire because when I meditate, my mind no longer gets distracted into basketball. And so I was meditating and my mind was getting distracted into, into business. And so I really had this strong realization that I, I had spent all this time in business and now I spent all this time in meditation and that like kind of a true spiritual path required taking all these things I'd learned from the cushion back into business. And so I spent kind of a year talking to, to artists that I cared about and, and had a connection with. And I just created a little business where I it's kind of like a management business and I work with artists who I love is that's the number one thing is that, that there's this heart connection between us. And then we just kind of work on like, how do we create great business while honoring our hearts and honoring the art? And so that nothing is nothing is lost there. And so we're 100% as warriors try to go out and get all the money we can, but not trampling our hearts, not trampling other people's hearts, and also making sure that the art is given its, its place in that equation. So I really resonate with that. I, you know, we, we talked a little bit about before, this before the show, you know, I used to be the... CEO of this private equity fund and I'm this like 28 year old whippersnapper, right? And I'm speaking at energy conferences in New York and it's like all these guys, my dad's age or my grandpa's age, these like big, you know, $10 billion funds and then little old me, right? And when I, when I took this change and I, I came and studied on the Arbinger Institute and it was, it's a really hyper-focused, these guys on, on not seeing others as objects and kind of like spotting self-deception and our leadership blind spots is what it's about. And, and as I've moved back into the finance world again, sometimes I wondered like, man, did I just waste the last eight years, you know? And, and it's very easy to feel like, you know, did I split my focus too much? Should I have stayed on all the finance stuff the whole time, even though I kept reading my Warren Buffett books and I stayed in touch with my wall street friends. And I, you know, I knew I'd be back in this world at some point. But then I sometimes have these feelings like, geez, did I just, you know, cut out half my career <laughs> to this point, right? Did I set myself back by half by not choosing to stay focused? 
And then at the other time, I think like, I know I had so many failings as leader because of self-focus, because of image management, because I wanted everybody to be so impressed with me. You know, I appreciate that you're sending me your book. I'm going to send you my favorite non-scripture book of all time. It's called Bonds That Make Us Free by Terry Warner. There's this great quote. There's a bunch of great quotes in it, but one of them is on page 73. And he says, he says that he doesn't believe our, our nature is evil, even in part. He says that he believes we have endless good in us. And then it has something to do with our ability to respect and revere others. And I read that and I thought, oh my gosh, my hero thinks that my inherent goodness comes from my capacity to respect and revere others. And I have not been working on that capacity at all. I've been working on trying to get others to respect and revere me. It was it hit me like a ton of bricks, you know? And so then at these other times, I think, no, I was not the leader that I needed to be. Because, you know, we've got this charity we've been running for the last 10 years called Child Rescue Association that combats child sex trafficking, which unfortunately happened to my mother as a 12-year-old in Santa Monica. And it was four generations in her family. She broke the cycle, so it didn't happen to my wife. And we just feel really strongly like I want to, I want to pay for that to do a lot better. And I seem to be better at for-profit business than non-profit fundraising. And this is what I just felt like that was right. But, but I still have this nagging thing of, did I just, did I just waste eight years, you know? And, and yet mentally I go, ah, I think I became a better human. So there's no way that could be a waste. Anyways, what if you have any coaching for me on this one? Yeah, I mean, one, I think that kind of self-doubt is just, I think part of like us as entrepreneurs is that there's a, there's a self-doubt or there's like maybe not even self-doubt, there's a world doubt. It, it's what causes you to say like, is there a better way to do this, right? Like, you know, like my wife teases me because we go for walks and like I redesign people's houses as we walk down the, <laughs> the road, you know, and then, and at the end I tell them like, you know, guys don't have to thank me. I just fixed the whole neighborhood. It's beautiful now, you know? And so I don't think we have to run from these tendencies either, you know, like, so that, that's one thing is like, I just think it's only when it consumes us when we're not, when we're not aware, like the heart of the heart of meditation is awareness, not perfection. You know, and so if I can be aware that I'm having doubts and kind of, I could play in there a little bit, you know, it's like a sandbox. It's only when I start to think, oh, that, that doubt is real. That doubt is me. That doubt starts to consume and take over my identity that we start to have problems, right? And so <clears throat> I think it's a very natural thing to think, God, it took off eight years. Was that worth it? You know? I do think, I think a lot of people right now wish they'd learned how to sit at home. I think a lot of people wish that they had learned how to live a life that has a bit less razzle-dazzle in it because we're kind of in that time. I know a lot of leaders that are spending a lot of time right now trying to figure out how to be kinder and more compassionate human beings. And so it seems to me that for whatever, however life works, those of us that did that work seem seems to me like it's a really good time to, to have those practices, you know? And so I think that's one thing that you can kind of just like kind of rest your hat on is like, wow, I actually gained a skill set 
that's really valuable in the world right now. You know, we watch, I don't know if you're like a sports fan, but you watch coaches now. Like, there's no more Bobby Knight type coaching. That's that's over. It's actually like who can relate to the player? Who does the player respect as a human being? Who can be there when the player needs a bit of guidance on this or this or that? And so those are those types of things that you were that you were learning that undoubtedly make you a better leader today than you were then. And luckily it's exactly what the world's calling for right now. And, and the world is, you know, the world is looking for who, who can lead me while still making me feel like a worthy human being. And you learn that, you know, so yeah. I, I don't know. My hats off to you. Congratulations. <laughs> you know, there's a comment you made earlier. I'd love to have you expand on. You talked about this idea of, you're working with these musicians that you really love. And when you guys are out there doing business, like that, you, you know, you're bringing the warrior, like you're going to get as much money as you can with, as long as you're not trampling on others and these kind of things. I'm interested in any principles of others of us that would like to do that. We want to, we want to, we want to play the sport to win. We're not interested in unsportsmanlike character and actions, but we want to play the sport to win. Any thoughts about playing the sport to win that, that maybe you've discovered over your career that, that not everyone discovers? I think if we can start with that principle that you and I were talking about earlier, of like recognizing that the person I'm playing with is a human too. And that person wants to win. And that person is just as worthy of winning as I am. And so I think like a lot of our trouble starts when we start to demonize and tell stories about that person over there as somehow being less human or less worthy than, than I am, you know? And, and I, and I think that's important because I've noticed that lots of times when I start from that place, that competition kind of morphs into collaboration. And what I mean by that is that sometimes like we can achieve it and both of us can win and that's cool, you know, to be successful. Like I, I set out in this deal to get X and if I sit down and talk to you as a human and it turns out you want why, well, cool. I never wanted why. So as long as I then don't shift my objective and I go, no, now I need X and Y because I really want to just crush Jess, then we can go, hey, let, cool. Well, then let's just create something and you take Y and I take X and we both and we both win. Now, sometimes it doesn't work that way and we both want X and we're just going to have a healthy competition. I think as long as we can not get to that place of like, I need to destroy you. You're bad because you want what I want and you want to hurt me and you're trying to hurt my family. And these stories that we make up that are just ridiculous because there are people in our world who are like physically threatened by other humans. But most of us as entrepreneurs, that's not a true story. We just have made up some to justify bad behavior. And so sometimes there isn't a way around and one of us is going to get the prize and someone's not. I don't know. I often find sometimes that doesn't feel good to me though. And so I figure out how you get something. Hey, like I played this game better than you and I beat you and I'm taking home this much, but I don't want you to go away with nothing either. Cause that doesn't feel correct to me. And so we figure it out, you know? And so I, I, for me, I think the key though is that if I can maintain the awareness that you're human and that you're no different than me. You want exactly the same things that I want for exactly the same reasons. Then 
the chances of finding something where I can feel good at the end of the day about the outcome, that feels a lot better to me. I think, I think we have a better chance of getting there. You know, it does make me think how often there's the temptations to, you know, objectify or dehumanize our competitors or things like that. The guy who's on the very first episode of this, you know, I think, you know, 475 episodes ago or whatever it is, right? Mentor of mine, Chip Youth, he talks about this idea of by objectifying our opponents, we almost indefinitely underestimate them as well. And, and you think about like, you know, I had a competitive judo all my teenage years. And, and I think about this idea of like, I was fighting my friends a lot, you know, because we just like, we just the nature of, of this sport, like the guys you're going to training camp with from these other clubs are also in your weight class. And then sometimes, sometimes it's you against them, you know, right. And it's, you know, your, your national, your, your tryouts for nationals or something. And it's your buddy you've known for years and it's either going to be you or him going, you know, and you don't have to hate him to beat him, you know? And I wonder if there's something related there as you, that's kind of what came to mind as you were talking. I think that's really it. Right. And, and we see it like, see it like in UFC fighting, you see it in boxing, really see it in like some of these sports where there's leagues and the guys are actually looking out for one another and they're hugging at the end of games. And, you know, and I watched a UFC match the other day where like the guy who won, his father had just died. And so he beat his competitor and the competitor came over and just held him while he cried. And then the guy who won, it turned out he had done a less destructive maneuver to win because he knew that that guy's parents were in the audience and he was feeling the loss of the loss of his dad. And so he didn't like break this guy's arm. He choked him. I mean, you know, it's fighting, but, but there was like so much compassion and beauty in that thing. And I think we go like, wow, if guys who are actually physically in combat can apply these principles, then we can totally do it in a boardroom or on a zoom or wherever we're doing our, our business and I and I just think what you said is it like you don't have to hate you to compete and and then I think the other thing is the moment I don't hate you I actually might find that collaboration is just a good way of getting done what I want to get done and and we can all win you know it's like we don't have to take every chip out of every single pile every single time and I and I don't know like I I feel like right now in this time of COVID like I don't know, I have like a hard time seeing people suffering the way they're suffering and knowing that I have plenty. I, I will not suffer during this time. And like, you know, I have, I have found that lots of things where I could take all the chips are turning into me going, you know what, you keep the chips, like you need that. Or, you know, Hey, here's, here's your, I'll pay your rent for the next six months while you get through, you know, these, these things that, that I think the moment, like, it's not like us against the world. Everyone's trying to attack my family fortune. And these stories that we tell, you just start to go like, actually it's kind of lonely being the only guy winning in this thing. And you know, it's okay. It's okay for other people to, to have chips and to win. And, you know, and I, I think that comes from that sense that you said of like, I don't hate you because you work at a different company than me. You know, it's just like it's ridiculous. Right. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that came to mind when you talked about thinking about 
I, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but what I heard was this idea of like thinking about the people we work with as a human as well of like the celebrities and the high profile people from your career, you know, on the show, sometimes we get high profile people, billionaires, or, you know, we just had Danny Glover on the show and right. There's probably been a lot of people who have tried to use him like a stepping stone during his career. Or like, you know, my, one of my partners in our investment fund, Lindsay, she has, a, she actually related to your world. She produced big concerts for charities. Like she produced the first three years of the global citizen festival in New York. And she's got this agency now where she helps, you know, Hugh Jackman's wife, her charity, Hopeland and Kevin Bacon's charity and these different folks and just helps them connect with artists and media and money and for a good cause kind of, she's kind of like the Pied Piper. It gets everybody to scratch each other's back, you know? And she's really taught me a lot about just really, really treating the high profile people, potentially even in even more humanizing ways than others, because they've been so objectified during their careers. They've, they almost, there's, there's real temptation to have, to just have a hyper awareness to that. Do you, do you see that at all? Do you see it differently? How would you talk about something like that without population? I think it's a very tough conversation to have publicly. Sure. Because on the one hand, we have a whole bunch of people in our world who are really suffering. And we have people that I think we're becoming more sensitive every day to people who for generations have been oppressed and are facing real hardship. And so for me, it's very easy to understand why public sentiment then looks at a high profile person. Usually high profile means lots of money and power and says, you're part of the problem mm. and I'm going to be some compassion. That's right. I'm going to dehumanize you because you don't deserve compassion because you're part of this system that's, that's hurting me. I, and I really understand that. And I understand where I fall in that as, as well. I also know a lot of these people in business, in music, in different areas of celebrity as humans. And it's not easy, you know, like it's, it's not, I know, you know, I, I created a program called love for live where we're providing free meditation resources to the live music business and one of the points that i've been making is that everyone is suffering i have friends who have been furloughed and i have friends who are doing the furloughing and i talk to both of them in conversations like this and they're both they're all suffering you know there's people who have their jobs who feel guilty because they have their jobs and there's people who don't have their job feel shame because it but but everyone in the ecosystem is is hurting and so I, I do I have a soft spot for artists I have a soft spot for for people it's a very lonely place to arrive at a certain level of success and and fame and for whatever reason I connect to that and so I agree with your friend I I and I also believe this that when we treat those people with compassion, they have a platform to do immeasurable good. So like you and I can work our entire lives and we can't do what somebody can do in a tweet. You know, like, I mean, that's like real amazing. So when instead of coming at that person as a non-human, we come at them as a human and often extremely sensitive human, often a human 
whose hole is bigger than the hole I had. And we know that because they need the love of the whole world to feel okay. We come at them with love and compassion. Often, I often find that their response then is to come at others with more love and compassion. And they have this platform to do it in ways that I never, that I never could. And so, yeah, I, I agree with your friend. And I also think I don't talk about it a lot publicly because it's just a really hard conversation to have when people are starving and out of jobs and hoping to God that they can get a rent rebate because they're going to get evicted from their apartment. And you go, Hey, you know who you need to be compassionate about is that guy who has a hundred million dollars. That's tough. But yes, I, I do believe, I do believe what your friend said. You know, it's tough that the world reacts like that. Cause I, as soon as you said that, I realized where you're going with it. And I thought it's interesting that when people have different trials than us, we assume that life as a whole must be easier for them. You know, actually one of the other potentially misunderstood groups that occurred to me as you were saying that is, you know, in this world of human trafficking and child exploitation, production of, of child sexual abuse imagery, stuff like this, the, the traffickers get almost no compassion. And I gotta tell you, they do some heinous things. Some really just rough, rough things happen. Right. And then it's interesting to find out that, you know, different reports show that 60% of traffickers are from in the U S 60% of traffickers are former victims, you know, and you look at a, a criminal justice system and I've got lots of friends that are cops and soldiers and special ops guys and work in the jails and, and without any disrespect to them, I've completely, I've no trouble at all saying that our current criminal justice program is not a recipe for success when you look at our recidivism rates, you know, and, and when we don't do things to help these guys come out and have a career, you know, they can't hardly get a job anywhere. They retrain like no wonder it's so tempting to go back into what made so much money and there's no resistance when like getting a job at McDonald's is brutally hard or I can go make 1500 bucks a night or eight grand a night doing what I used to do even if they feel guilty, you know, like, and so to me, it, it, I have a real interest in something that a lot of people, especially people newer to our space, they don't want to talk about. They don't want to talk about compassion for the abusers who probably need some help, which is, it's so funny because they just want to punish them. Right. And it's like, you know, my own spiritual belief, I believe that's going to happen with God. You know, I don't need, I don't need to do the punishing. Right. But I do think about making a society safe. I got four kids, you know, making a, a society that's safe for my kids to walk around without me and my grandkids eventually to walk around without me. Well, helping these people get enough help to reprogram their brain and overcome addictions and overcome compulsions and things like that. And, and to help the, the folks more on the criminal business side to have like legitimate money-making opportunities rather than basically just getting the door slammed in their face everywhere they go as soon as they get out. You know, anyways, those are just, that's another couple areas that you know, one of the things is that compassion to me. We, we always talk about these situations as if they're not our kids or grandkids that end up committing crimes. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's always assumed my grandkid's going to be the victim, not, not the perpetrator. Right. And then we might think about it differently if, if we considered that somebody's grandkid is the, the perpetrator, you know, and somebody's son and somebody's mom and, you know, 
I think one of the questions I try to ask is what would have to happen in my life for me to behave the way of, that the person I'm judging is, you know, and, and that's a really, like, when you're honest in that, in that questioning, it's a very, very thin line between you and everybody else. You know, I would never kill anybody. Okay. Just answer What would have to happen for you to kill? Oh, wow. What would have to happen for you to sexually abuse a child? Oh, wow. What if my dad had done that to me? You know, like, wow, I'm, I, wow, I am, I'm this thin line away from being everybody. And I think, look, I, I think ultimately the goal has to be to love everybody. And, and I don't mean that we're going to be successful at that. And I don't mean that we should confuse the word love and like, or love and approve, or love and champion, or love and promote, or love and invite them over for dinner. But I think, I think ultimately what we're, what, where our society, where we as people have to get to is that we love everybody. And that just means I understand the core of your humanity. And when I do that, I know I've accepted myself, right? Because, because that's what it takes. And so I, I think I've got to, I've got to use my practice to look inward and learn to love myself and even the horrible, awful parts of me. Now this lashing out at others is just, I don't want to look at what's horrible about me. You know, I don't want to look at that when I worked at Live Nation, I laid people off so I could get my bonus. So instead, I point to someone richer and more powerful. And then meeting that, if I can meet that with love, then that becomes like this really interesting process of healing. And then I look out at the world, and I'm just not so fast to want to, like our society's obsession with locking people in cages. Like for a society that talks about freedom being the core, our okayness with seeing other human beings put in cages, to me, is like one of the fascinating things. And, and the only thing that I can relate to is the answer is because we feel caged ourselves. And so for me, that, that everything always is turn, sorry, turn inward, find it in myself, liberate it in myself, and then I can look outward and find that I can I can be a part of the liberating of others. Yeah, you know, maybe one final comment I'll leave on that one is, like, I, I believe that we need to put our adult hats on about some of that stuff. Like, we've got individuals that, you know, just changing the number of years that somebody needs to be in jail does not all of a sudden make them safe to be around children. Do you know what I mean? And for us to ignore that, it feels very irresponsible as adults to me. And yet in other times, in other, in other cases, you look at like programs in San Francisco, like Delancey street, or there's, there's a spinoff group here in Salt Lake city, Utah called, Oh my gosh, I love these guys. I visited them multiple times. I can't believe I remember their names. It's an Academy and it's awesome. It's a bunch of ex cons. And, and, and basically it's like they run their own businesses that support themselves. And it's a, total personal responsibility thing. And basically like there's all these judges that are like, okay, if you can last three years there without getting kicked out, kicked out, you can skip 12 years in jail. And it's because their recidivism rate is like, you know, 15% instead of 75% or 65%, you know? And it's like the inner entrepreneur in me is like, so there's a pattern over here that's working. <laughs> what do you think about duplicating this? Right. But it doesn't fit the story of basic badness, right? It doesn't fit the story of, you're evil and 
And it, what it does fit the story of is this sense of we are unwilling to take, as we go back to that talk of flow and stagnation, we have parts of our society that are stagnating because all we care about is other parts. And so if all that matters is commerce, then people's hearts, I mean, the, I think this is like a really important thing. The definition of a goal, in addition to defining what you want to achieve, it also by default defines what you're willing to trample to get there. And so we have to be like really, really, really careful when we say all I care about is this because we've just defined a whole scope of life that we don't care about. And I think when we look at our world right now, look at our country to be like more zoomed in. It's very clear what we care about and it's very clear what we don't care about. And it doesn't matter like what the inscription on the Statue of Liberty says or what the Constitution says or what we say on the news or what I put on Twitter yesterday. By definition, there's a whole bunch of people that we don't care about, and then there's commerce. And I think we just have to get ourselves to this place where we open our hearts up a little bit and say, that's not enough. That's not good enough. Yeah. You know, know, I do feel like that has certainly been the case. And I think in some ways I feel very optimistic. We have had some different folks on here friends who've been on the show who are running B Corps. And there's a guy, Davis Smith, who's like one of the most positive guys. He, he has this outdoor brand apparel brand called code epoxy. And they're like very considerate of what it's like to be a worker. In fact, one of their bags, they, they let the workers in Central America choose the colors and every bag comes out different. Right. Oh, cool. Ended up becoming oh, cool. their best selling bag. Right. But I think I was a little more skeptical a few years ago about, a lot of social impact stuff that just sounded like a marketing, a marketing thing. And more and more lately, I'm feeling like, no, those people are actually living it. It's not just, that's not just a marketing slogan. And it makes me optimistic to see people who have kind of embraced it as a way of life within commerce. Yeah. And I really think it has to come there. Like there's only so much, there's only only so much that governance is going to do. And I, I think, I think you're seeing it more and more and more and more. I have lots of friends. I mean, Michael Rapino, who runs Live Nation, has this great slogan that I love, which is, I don't have a charity. I have 10,000 employees. So he has this very simple thing, which is, I provide the best benefits I can. And if they're not good enough, you email me directly. He, like, writes checks to people. Oh, my my son is autistic and he's going to get kicked out of the school. Okay, I'll send you five grand. I'll send you, you know... Yes, because if we just take the if we just take the area that that our corporate governance is responsible for, and we expand it just a little bit, give it a little bit of space, you know, it's like, hey, I'm res-, because I think lots of times business becomes cancerous. Like most business sets out to like solve a need, and then it expands, and it might expand vertically, and it might expand horizontally, and at some point you can't expand anymore. And we want business to live forever. So then what do we tell it? We cut its cost. So it starts eating its employees. And then it starts eating its, its, its quality, its, its product quality. It becomes cancerous. I mean, all a cancerous cell is is a cell that's turned on the body. So business turns on itself and it begins to eat the environment around it and eat itself to death. If we, if we start to express that what we expect from business, what we expect from leaders – 
is for them to care for the immediate environment around them and for the employee welfare of the people that work for them. Things start to change. That's what you're talking about with your friends, where suddenly there's a group of leaders, many of them young. And I think that movement does it. For me, it energizes me. It motivates me. I do have hope because I think we're not, we're not going to be able to govern it away. It's going to take people realizing I am not a CEO. I'm a human being. And I need to do something that feels good to me the way my friend at Live Nation is and the way that your friends are. You know, Mark Benioff is another guy who comes to mind who's doing like, said like, it's not all about shareholder value. You know, like there's these other, these other things. And then that also doesn't make these people saints. And we can find areas that, hey, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. But I think in general, just come to work with a heart that's a little more open. It says, I don't just this and my pocketbook, but I actually have a heart. And this isn't right. How do I fix it? You know? Well, and I think this is probably part of the reasons that I like so much what you've said about the monk and the warrior. It doesn't have to be an either or is because many of those friends of mine do have a Tesla. They do have a yeah. Tesla and make the world better. I wasn't and it doesn't, no, no, no. Yeah. But, but but to my point though, uh, that it, it doesn't have to be an either or. You don't have to like achieve your goals or make the world better. And that just seems like the most fun of all for me. Yeah. And I think we can, and we watch and there's times where, I mean, my, my experience this year where, you know, my business was basically decimated by COVID and hopefully it'll come back and, and, so like I was just sitting around and all of a sudden I realized, oh, all these people I know don't have jobs and their mental health is probably shot right now. I know what that feels like. I can help with that. And then I did this thing or like I was watching the the debates and then I realized that that there was, you know, a move to get Hispanic people to vote. And I was like, oh, all my artists can help with that. We can create that. So I think that's the other thing is that as entrepreneurs – We've learned to identify areas in the world that can be fixed by the skill set that we have. We don't have to even like, it's not like you have to jump out and learn some new skill set. It's just where can, where can you provide your skills to make things a little bit better? And then sometimes that makes us money. And then sometimes the payoff is that humanity is just a little bit better. And then I think if, if we allow both those to be okay, then it's not really even hard because there's just areas that pop up and you go like, Oh, I'm good at that. I can help, you know? Yeah. Well, I know we're over time here. I appreciate you. Yeah, I think, great. I think what's fun for me is, you know, you go from being like, you know, on these lists of like, you know, top 20 highest paid CEOs under 40, whatever. Right. And you have this stuff over here so that you can, there's so much of a greater portion of the population that you can reach because they identify with you on one side or the other. So I'm glad that people like you are writing books. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. It was, this was a great conversation. It's fun. Great. See you, everyone.